Good morning, church. If you're new to City Church, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Welcome. Welcome. Glad you're here. We're going to read from the Bible, Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, just fire it off, start right with the passage of Scripture we're going to focus on today, starting in verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, it will be on the screen behind me. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, what are those next three words? Saying, who is this? Who is this? I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but today is Palm Sunday, a special day in the history of the church and an important day for any follower of Jesus. And we felt like today in preparation for Easter and entering into Holy Week and much tradition around these times, we felt like today was an appropriate day to kind of pull back and pause and gaze upon this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem and really discover the essence of this story and the essence of what God wants to teach us through it. So if you want to jot some notes down, I want to encourage you. The title of today's sermon is, You've Got to Meet Him. You've got to meet Him. You can jot that down if you'd like on your iPad or your iPhone or your paper or whatever you'd like to do. If you want to jot some things down, you've got to meet him. Have you ever met someone that was just so compelling and so interesting and so appealing and so unique that they just drew you in? You know, I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that. I know the first time I met my wife, we were 16 years old, 16 years old, going back a little ways. I know I look like I'm 22, but I'm a little older than that. And uh, 16 years old, we fell in love. And I can remember just literally just like following her around that first day and just being like, who is this girl? She's amazing. And we started talking on the phone shortly after that. And I remember the first time I found out that she was a singer. And, and I asked her, well, would you sing for me? And so she put the phone down and she sang like over the phone. And I was mesmerized. I mean, I was just like, I was stupefied. Like it was, it was awesome. And, uh, and it was just one of those moments where it was just like, wow, this person is incredible. Have you ever had a moment like that? I had a friend uh, early in my journey into, into really leadership in, in the church. When I was 21, I met a man named Bob who was much further along than me, a traveling minister all over the world. And Bob just took me under his wing and started kind of showing me how things were working in the ministry world and, and uh, you know, at that time. And, and it was so helpful. And I remember every time I'd be with Bob, my faith would be so high because his faith was so high. I don't know if you've ever been around anybody like that, that. He was so courageous and so full of faith. Everywhere he went, people would give their lives to Christ. Everywhere he went, God would do great things. And I remember every time I was with him, I would leave like buzzing. You know, I'd leave like just buzzing with anticipation of, wow, that was so incredible. Think for me, think with me, don't think for me. Think with me for a moment about what it would be like to be in the presence, the physical presence of Jesus of Nazareth. Now this is an amazing idea. We don't know exactly what Jesus looked like or exactly how eloquent Jesus spoke. But we do know that the people that were in his presence regularly 
were blown away by him. There was something so unique about this man. Uh, Some people came back to the Pharisees after they met with Jesus and they said this. They said, no one has ever spoken the way that this man does. No one ever has has spoken the way this man does. When Jesus met the woman at the well in John chapter 4, if you know the story, she goes back to her friends and she says, this man told me everything I ever did. Now that's of course not true, right? She didn't say, he didn't tell her everything she ever did. But he told her enough about herself that it felt like she, he knew every part of her. When they tried to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they came up with about 300 to 600 soldiers. And they walk into the Garden. They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus steps forward among his disciples and he says, I am he. And as soon as he says those words, his physical presence was so powerful that the soldiers fell on the ground when he spoke. It's an amazing idea to think about what would it have been like to be in the physical presence of Jesus of Nazareth, one of his best friends, maybe his best friend on earth, John, wrote the Gospel of John. And when John wrote down the miracles of Jesus, he ends the book by saying, if I were to write down every miracle Jesus did when I was around, I literally wouldn't have enough paper on planet earth. I mean, there was less paper back then. But, but what he was saying was that there was just so many amazing moments. We've just given you a few. This is Jesus, the most compelling, unique person in human history. He really is. But for Christians, he's far more than that. For Christians, he's not just a compelling, unique person. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That's a pretty big claim, right? In other words, when you see Jesus and understand what Jesus is like, you also understand fully what God is like. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. And so Palm Sunday is so important because if you ever take time and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you'll find that constantly Jesus seems to be hiding himself. He doesn't come out in public and declare who he is. That in the mystery of God, God planned that Palm Sunday would be the day where he revealed himself to the world, where he took off the veil and displayed who he really was. And so Palm Sunday and everything about it recorded in the scripture, it's in every single gospel, by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all record this story. It's that important. It's Jesus' unveiling of who God really is to the world. And whether we realize it or not, every one of us has been wondering and asking that question our entire lives. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? It's interesting that 90-something percent of human beings believe in a power beyond themselves, some type of God. So there's something written on the code of the human heart that tells us that there's a being beyond ourselves. But the big question is not, is he there? Because the vast majority of people know that he is. But who is he? What's he like? Is he distant or is he close? Does he care or is he careless? Is he powerful or is he weak? Who is this? Who is this? Go ahead and turn to the person next to you and tell them we're going to find out today. We're going to find out. We're going to answer the big question. We are going to find out today. And this story was God's invitation for us to discover who he is. Look at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent his disciples. Check out how the story starts. He says, go into the village in front of you. Immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Now, normally that's not a good thing to do, right? Go steal a couple of animals. You know, it's like that's... That typically is not a good plan. But he says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So obviously Jesus has a plan here. Now, how did he know that there would be a donkey there with a colt? How do you know? There's really only two explanations. One is he planned ahead of time. 
right? He like went and talked to the people who owned it and asked if it would be okay and blah, blah, blah. He planned ahead. Or secondly, he prophetically knew. He knew by the Spirit that that would be there and it would be okay and on and on. Either way, it's clear that Jesus had a plan, right? He had a plan. He had a specific plan. There's no other way that this could have unfolded. Verse 4 tells us more of the plan. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So clearly, this is a broader plan than just the day of. Jesus wasn't making this up as he went along. 500 years before Jesus walked on planet Earth, the prophet Zechariah had said that the king of Israel, who would deliver the world, who would set the world free from sin and from bondage, this great king, this amazing king, would do something unexpected. He would enter publicly on a donkey. Okay, And so this was a prophetic word given by Zechariah 500 years before Jesus was born. And Jesus is now fulfilling that word. But it goes even deeper. Because before Zechariah there was Daniel, another great prophet in Israel, who was captive to Babylon, writing prophecies about an anointed one who would save the world from their sins. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, 600 plus years before Jesus ever walked the earth in flesh, Daniel said this, check it out, it said, Now listen and understand. All right, so we're supposed to do two things there, right? Not sleep right now and understand. So come on, look at somebody and just say, you better listen. Understand. Come on, stay with me today. Listen and understand, says Daniel. He says, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time you command to give the rebuild Jerusalem until the ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt, rebuilt the streets and the strong defenses despite the perilous times. Everybody understand? We got that? Good. Next thing. No, that's a little confusing. Like, Dan, hold on. How many days? Who? What? What? Well, if you calculate out what he said, historians tell us that on March 14th, 445 BC, the king of Persia gives the command to Nehemiah, a leader in Israel, to go back to Israel and rebuild the walls, okay? Historically, we seem to know that pretty certainly. So, Nehemiah then goes to rebuild the walls. Daniel tells us 95 years before the command is given that the command will in fact be given, and from that day, from that exact day, there's 62 sets of 72 sets of 62 sevens, right? And so when you add that up, that's 173,880 days will pass from the time the command is given to the time the Messiah publicly, the anointed one, enters Jerusalem, okay? And so that's what the scripture tells us. Now, that's interesting because this was based on a Babylonian calendar with 360 days rather than 365 days. So if you take 173,880 days and calculate it out over a 360-day year, you will find that. 483 years, which brings us to April 6, 32 AD, the exact day that many historians believe Jesus of Nazareth walked into Jerusalem. Wow. Wake up. It's okay. You're going to be all right. Now that's interesting. Curious, right? Just in case we were struggling and skeptical, verse 26, the next verse in Daniel, verse chapter 9, tells us this. It says, after this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed. So in other words, he's going to come into Jerusalem, and then he's going to be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. It's interesting that just a few days later, Jesus, of course, is crucified, and it's appearing that he accomplished nothing. Many people say it was just silly. It was a waste of time. Many people walked away thinking, this man just died for nothing. And the ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. If you know your history, you know that about 40 years after Jesus was crucified, the Roman officials sacked the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, just as Daniel prophesied 600 years earlier. The end will come with a flood, and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Now, there's a few hostile places on planet Earth, 
But I don't know if there's anywhere more hostile than the Middle East. 1,947 years later, all the way from that time to today, there's not been peace in the Middle East for more than a week. Because the prophecy has been fulfilled. It's come to pass. Now this is amazing, right? It tells us right here in this prophecy that Jesus will be killed, that Israel, that Jerusalem will be sacked and destroyed, and that there'll be unrest in Israel ongoing from that time. Why would God go through all this trouble? I mean, think about how precise all this is for a moment. He literally gives us the exact day and time the Messiah is going to come in. I mean, certainly it's to encourage our faith, although none of this will convince you of faith, of faith alone. You have to have that trust in your heart to believe in God. But as you look at all this, why would God give us such incredible, unique detail? Unless he's trying to get our attention. Remember, Jesus is revealing who God is on Palm Sunday. He's revealing it to all of us, right? And so as he steps into Jerusalem on this donkey, he is doing it right on schedule. Right on schedule. Now, it's interesting that most of us, if we're honest, do not live with this revelation of God. We live as though life depends on us. And God has given us choice. He's given us free will. So you get to choose what you eat for breakfast. And you get to choose whether you come to church or not. And you get to choose all types of things all throughout your life. God gave you choice. But what we see here is that above your choice, God has a plan. And without violating your choice, he is supernaturally moving all of the world events of history into a specific strategy to unveil himself to the world. And he has been planning it all along that somehow in the sovereignty of God, he is big enough to give you freedom and still steer the ship of humanity at the same time. This is the creator of the universe. This is the God of all things. Who is this, is the question they asked when they saw a man on a donkey. And the answer is this, Jesus, the architect of history. He's the architect of history. You can jot that thought down. We're going to unveil today who he is according to, to Palm Sunday. He is the architect of history. Now, that's an interesting phrase, I think. Because for most of us, you don't live with the revelation that he is in fact the architect of your history. And how do I know that? Because you worry. You worry. Some of us right now, if you look back at your last week, what were you worrying about? How did you sleep this week? Were you worried about your money? Were you worried about your kids? Were you worried about your job, some project you got to finish? Were you worried about your spouse? Were you worried about some program for school that you got to complete? See, every time we worry, every time we worry, we give evidence to the fact that we see God a little bit smaller and ourselves a little bit bigger. You might say, Justin, it's ridiculous. Everyone worries. Really? Because the scripture says you can live a life where you are anxious for nothing. That's what the scripture says. So if it's actually true, how do you get there? How do you live a life where you don't worry for anything? The revelation of Jesus becomes clear in your heart. You see him as the architect of history. Come on, encourage the person next to you saying, this is good. This is really, this is important stuff. This is really good. Verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey, the colt, and put it on the, on the, their cloaks on them, and he sat on the, on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that were went before him, followed him, were shouting. Look what they were shouting. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in 
the highest. So they're shouting something specific. Now, if you know much about your history, you know that Israel at this time was longing for a king, okay? They had been conquered by Rome, were now under Roman oppression, and they had been crying out for a coming savior. And their mind was politically focused. They were thinking only about deliverance from Rome. Now, they had been through this before. Gideon had delivered them before this. You know, uh, Samson had delivered them before that. Uh, God had used Moses to deliver them from Egypt. Israel had a long history of great deliverers. And so they were praying for a political deliverer. And so they were anticipating that deliverer coming. When Jesus walks in, on a donkey, they immediately know that he's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, so they do what anyone would do when a king is coming. They take palm branches, they begin to wave them and lay them down on the road. That was customary in the arrival of a king, to honor that king. So the palm branch represents, you are my king, okay? And so here they are, declaring that he is the king, and then they start shouting Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 was a prophetic psalm written about the coming Savior of the world, the Messiah, okay? And so they're declaring, yoo it's you! Wow, it's amazing! We're going to take Rome down. Maybe fire's going to fall from heaven. We don't know how it's all going to go down, but it's going to be awesome, and we're going to be free, and we're all excited about that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if they had paid attention a little bit closer and not been so blinded by their preconceived ideas, what they would have discovered is that before it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in Psalm 118, It also says that the stone that the builders rejected would become the chief cornerstone. That this was marvelous in God's eyes. Okay? And so in other words, what it's saying there is that Jesus would come and be rejected as king and that he would die for the sins of the world just as Daniel says that the anointed one will be killed. But they were blinded because they could only think about a king through one lens. Right? And Jesus was showing them that God is a king in fact but he's a different kind of king. And rather than entering on a stallion, which is what a king should do, right? A big white horse. And if you don't have a white horse, then, you know, maybe go with an elephant, right? And if you don't have an elephant, maybe go with a camel. But if you don't have an elephant, a camel, or a horse, I mean, don't come in on a donkey. Like, think about all the animals that you ever learned as a little kid, right? All the different silly animals you learned. You've got the pigs, you've got the, you got all the different things. The goofiest animal of all is the donkey, is it not? I mean, the donkey's name. All right, quick story. Sunday afternoons. My family is often kind of wiped out from church, you know, we're tired. And so we have this tradition where we all just like, on the couch, you know? And so a couple Sundays ago, we're, we're, we're crashing on the couch, me and my older boys, my wife, and uh, we're watching some TV, and we're watching um, Planet Earth. It's on Netflix now. Planet Earth, an old documentary uh, narrated by David Attleborough. If you've never seen it, it's really good. And so it's just all these different, you know, these different things happening all across the planet. Earth, you know. And so uh, we're watching it. It's, it's fun, and we're just chilling out. Totally true story. Can't make this stuff up. And David Attleborough, in his great British accent, he, he's talking about the different animals, the elephants, and all these things. And then he goes, roaming the plains is the wild ass, right? And as soon as he says it, I mean, I'm not kidding. As soon as he says it, my kids are like, <coughs> you know, like, I mean, and we're like, hey, boys, boys, this is informational, you know, like, Keep it together, because if you have boys, you know that anything that has to do with butts or poop or anything else like that, you know, and and especially a word they're not supposed to say, you know, is like, you know, so they're all cracking up. So we finally, like, reel them in, you know, and we're watching these donkeys kind of, you know, like, run around on on the screen and everything. And we're like, reel it in, reel it. And then David Adderall goes, uh, I mean, mean, again, we make this up. He goes, the, uh, he goes, 
the female ass is a mysterious creature. I mean, like, I mean, like, we were like, oh, no. And, like, as soon as he says it, my kids are, like, falling on the ground, rolling around. My wife and I are like, ah! You know, it's like, like, there's just, this is a big joke. I mean, this is a big, ridiculous joke. If you want to be taken seriously, do not choose the donkey. Right? I mean, don't choose the donkey of all creatures. And yet God chooses the, why? Why does he do this? I mean, it's almost like, are, are you serious right now? Can you not pick anything else? I mean, come with kittens. I mean, do anything. Not donkey. But he chooses the donkey to expose something in us, church. To expose something in human thinking. See, we have a vision of leadership. We have a view of, of power. And that view is flawed. Because we try to squeeze God into our image of power or prestige. And he doesn't fit. When, when John, the apostle, has a vision of heaven and he's standing before the throne room of God in the book of Revelation, one of the elders turns to John and says, the lion of the tribe of Judah has overcome. And so when he says that, John says, I'm going to see the lion. And so he beholds and views the lion. And when he turns to view the lion, what does he see? If you know the text, I believe it's Revelation chapter 9. When he turns to view the lion, he, see, he sees instead a lamb. A lamb covered and caked in blood. And he says, what a great mystery. He pauses. He says, the lion is the lamb. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians, said this about that passage. He said, the lion excels in strength and majesty of his appearance and his voice. The lamb excels in meekness and patience, is sacrificed for clothing and food. But we see that Christ, check this out, is in the text compared to both. Because the diverse excellencies of both wonderfully meet in him. There is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such really diverse excellencies as otherwise would have seemed to be to us utterly incompatible in the same subject. In other words, Jesus is this collision of sovereignty and submission, of power and humility, of holiness and accessibility. Who is this? That's what they all wanted to know. That's what you and I so desperately need to grasp. Who is this? It's Jesus the unrivaled king, the unrivaled king. There's no one like him. There's none before him. There's none besides him. And for many of us, unfortunately, we view Jesus as one king among many, as one option among many. When we're scared or afraid, we turn to Jesus. But when things are good, we turn to something or someone else. But God says, no, 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 I don't want competition. I am the unrivaled king. And in this brief moment called life, you have the opportunity to choose him. As your unrivaled king. I wonder, did you live this last week like he was your unrivaled king? Or did you barely even remember that he existed? Jesus, the unrivaled king, that's who he is. Now, if you know the story, Jesus enters Jerusalem, the architect of history, the unrivaled king, and he goes straight to the temple. If you know the story, right after he does this, Matthew 21, boom, right into the temple. And the temple in the Old Testament was the picture of the house of God. It's where the presence of God dwelled. But the temple in the New Testament, we're told, is no longer a building made of stone. The temple is, anybody want to guess? Our hearts. 
that God changes the location of the temple. The old temple is destroyed, and the new temple becomes your body. Your heart becomes the home of God. That when you say yes to Christ, the very Spirit of God comes to dwell inside you and is tied in an unbreakable bond to your spirit. This is why you are saved if you're a follower of Christ. And so the temple becomes the person, okay? Now when Jesus enters the temple, he does something specific. Stay with me. Look at what he does in verse 12. It says, Jesus entered the temple... First place he goes after he enters Jerusalem. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. God's speaking to you right now. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. I don't know why they were selling pigeons. Well, no, I do. It's because of sacrifices they were making. But I don't know why he singled out the pigeons. But either way. And the blind, verse 14, and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. Huh. I don't know if you're tracking with me right now. See, that's a physical picture of God reforming Israel for their sin. He's the reformer. But it's also a spiritual picture of what he intends to do in your life. Hello. See, when you say yes to Jesus, when you open up your heart to him, he comes to live in your temple. And when he does that, he gets right to work. And he's always doing two things. In fact, he's doing them right now. Oh, I pray that you'd become aware of them. Because when you're ignorant of them, you cannot partner with him. He's doing two things. First, he's driving out all those who would buy and sell inside your heart. All those addictions, all those fears, all those lusts that would put your soul for sale. He says, they can't be here. Nothing can compete with my supremacy in your heart. I'm driving out the money changers. I'm driving out all those who would buy and sell inside your soul. God's doing it right now. In fact, if you've been around this church or around Christ for any length of time, you can look back on a long history of all the times God has driven out every other love other than him. And so he's driving out all the money changers, and then he's doing something unique as well. He's healing you where you are lame and restoring sight where you are blind. That's the work of God in your life. Who is this? Huh. Who is this? That's the question they asked. He's the architect of history. He's the unrivaled king. He's Jesus, the reformer of your heart. He came here to change your soul. If you remember, Jesus stepped into the synagogue in the very beginning of his ministry and said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Isaiah 61. He's anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted. That's his goal. He wants to put your heart back together. He wants to heal you. He wants to restore you. And look what happens in verse 10 when Jesus enters the city. Take a look. Come on, stay with me. It says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city. Look at that phrase. The whole city. Now this was Passover week, so this was a busy, busy time. And yet the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? Now that phrase stirred up. I'm not a fan of that translation. The original Greek, stirred up, could literally be translated shaken. It's a word used to describe earthquakes. So earthquakes shake the earth, right? And so what the scripture is saying here is that when Jesus entered the city, the entire city was shaken by his arrival. The entire city was shaken by his appearance. Now, what was so profound about a man on a donkey shaking the city? How did he so passionately, powerfully shift that city just by coming in on a donkey? What was it? 
see the people began to catch a glimpse of who he was. They were blown away by his presence, by his glory. They began to see him as the architect of history, as the king like no other king. They began to see him as the reformer of Israel and the reformer of their hearts. People started to catch a glimpse of who he really is. See, A.W. Tozer wrote in his famous book, The Knowledge of the Holy, that the thought that comes into your mind when you think about God, the first thought that comes into your mind when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. See, your picture of God is so important because if it's flawed, you're interacting with him in a way that is not true. And so the picture of God must be redeemed. It must be transformed. And what they realized here and what I want you to see today is that God is not what you imagined him to be. He's far better. He's far better. He is offensively better than you've imagined him to be. And you must change your picture of him. Why? Because an accurate accurate picture of God restores the soul. That's why. An accurate picture. Oh, come Holy Spirit. He's here right now. An accurate picture of God restores the soul. See, my soul and yours is fractured, broken, disheveled, corrupt because of sin that lives in our hearts. And we do not, in our own ability, have the capacity to heal it. But when we see him, and we accurately answer the question, who is this? And we take hold of who he really is to us. It's like medicine to the soul. In fact, I would say that your maturity in Christ can be tracked on your picture of God. Because an accurate picture of God releases the power of God to bring the life of God into the heart of the believer. Who is he to you? Come on, let's just be personal right now. Maybe you've been a follower of Christ for 30 years and you still don't know who he is in some areas. I can guarantee you don't. We are constantly growing. Maybe you're here today and you've not even surrendered your heart to Christ. Today's your day, by the way. Who is this? Who is this? Do you see life as just a collection of random events? Or do you surrender to the architect of history? That he has a plan. And you trust him when it looks good and when it doesn't look good. Do you see him as one among many options? Or do you see him as the unrivaled king like no other? Do you see him as the condemner of your heart? Or do you see him as the reformer of your soul? Who is this? It's God. It's God. And he's not here to condemn you right now. Hello. He's here to heal you right now. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, rich you are, how poor you are, your ethnicity, your job, your title. He's here to heal you right now. 
He sees past all that right to your soul. He's here to heal you right now. Oh, you say, Justin, he can't be that good. He's better than that. He's better than you can imagine. I wonder if you'd open your heart to him right now. There's an old prophecy, even older than Daniel, even older than Zechariah, that speaks of the coming Messiah. It's an interesting prophecy. It's given in Genesis chapter 49. It's given by Jacob. God speaks a blessing to Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel, that become the nation of Israel. And before he dies, Jacob gives a prophecy to every one of his sons, and he gives this one to Judah. Judah. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants. Now that's weird because Judah wasn't the oldest. He wasn't a king. But if you know your Bible history, it's from the line of Judah that comes King David. And from King David, all the lines of kings in Israel. And from those kings comes Jesus. And that's the second half. Until the coming one to whom it belongs, the one whom the nations will honor. Oh my goodness. But then the next verse says something strange. Something that when I first read it, it just made me scratch my head. And I still, to be honest, feel like I only have a fraction of what it's really saying. But the next verse in Genesis 49 says this. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robe in the blood of grapes. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. I am the vine. And on Palm Sunday, the vine, the source, was tethered to the donkey. The king was brought low and suffered just a few days later the greatest humiliation that a human being can go through. Naked, bleeding on a cross. <laughs> but he did it for a purpose. It says that they'll take their garments and wash them in wine. Now, no one washes clothes in wine. Wine is too expensive to wash clothing in. It's too valuable. What could possibly be as precious as wine? The scripture is saying that something so precious will be used for someone so common. When supper was ended, he took the cup. And he said, this is my blood. Drink it. Be washed clean of your sins. And do this in remembrance of me. God's plan was to take the wine of his son, the very blood of Christ, and wash away your past, your present, and your future sins so that something so precious could cleanse someone so common and make us perfect in his sight. That's the plan of God for you. Who is this? <laughs> this is God. And you can trust him because he's better than you've imagined. Come on, stand to your feet with me today.
Would you close your eyes right now? Right now, right here. Would you close your eyes? What comes into your mind when you think about God? That's the most important thing about you. Is your view of God accurate? None of ours truly is fully. But with your eyes closed, I want you to consider right now where your view may be skewed. Do you rely on him as the architect of your life? Or are you still scrambling and trying to fulfill some other person's or your own intentions? Rest. Come to him as the architect of your soul. Trust him with tomorrow. Live with him today. With your eyes closed, do you know him as your unrivaled king? Have you surrendered? Said there's no one you're equal. There's no one before you. There's no one besides you. You're the king of my heart. Have you opened your soul to him as the great reformer to drive out those who buy and sell inside of you and to heal the parts of you that are blind and lame? Oh, right now, let him in. You're here today. I just want to give you a word. You're here today. You've been divorced more than once. You've got some scars. Let him in. Let him in right now. He wants to heal that spot in you. Let him in right now. You battle with anxiety. You've tried everything. You're still battling. Let him in right now. He wants to heal you. Someone you love is very, very sick, and it's been a long journey, and you don't have answers. Let him in right now. He wants to comfort you. Let him in. Said, Let him in. Open your heart. Let him be the reformer of your soul. Open your heart right now. Be vulnerable before him. Be honest. Be like a child. Trust him right now. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Come and breathe on your people. Come, Holy Spirit of God. Come. Move, Lord Jesus. Would you open up your heart right now? Come, Holy Spirit. If you need to turn your life over to Christ, I want to give you the... The opportunity to do that right now. You're here today and you say, Justin, I'm far from God. You don't need to be. God came to rescue you. He died for your sins. He rose again. If you receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus, he'll make you perfect in his sight. He'll give you eternal life, forgive you of your sins, heal your heart, and walk with you every day of your life. You need him. You were created to need him. Your whole life, whether you realize it or not, you've been searching for him. And it's no accident that you're here right now. He brought you to this room, to this place, for this moment, so that you could surrender. If you say, I'm far from God, I don't want to be. You just need to place your faith in Christ. You can't earn or deserve his love and affection. You just need to receive it. And he'll come in. And he'll start transforming your heart for your good and for his glory. If that's you today and you say, I've been far from God, I don't want to be. Would you just slip up your hand and say, today I need to surrender. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else say, that's me. I need to surrender today. This is between you and God right now. You can put your hands down, those of you that raise your hands. Anybody else say, that's me. Today's my day. I need to surrender. Every week we love to give people opportunity for this moment. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I'm going to lead you in a prayer of surrender. You can whisper this to God. Tell him right now, Jesus, save me. You can whisper it right now. Jesus, save me. I believe you died and rose again. And I surrender. Take my life. 
forgive me. Come and live inside my heart. Right now, I say yes. Thank you for loving me and calling me. Amen. Amen. Church, together right now, we're going to participate in communion. And if you're not a, a Christian and you don't want to participate in this, we honor you. We're glad you're here. And that's fine. If you are a follower of Christ, we do encourage you to participate in this time of communion. This is a spiritual act and a physical remembrance of what Christ did when he died and rose again. And we symbolize many things as we prepare for communion. But today, I want you to focus on one thing specifically. The prayer that God put on my heart as we received communion was this. God, help me to embrace who you really are, not who I've made you to be. God, help me to embrace today who you really are, not who I've made you to be. I'm going to pray and then ushers will release you row by row to come receive communion and then come back to your seat and we're going to worship a little bit together before the service is over. So let's pray together and then those that want to receive communion, participate in this can and make your way back to your seat after you have received communion. Let's pray. God in heaven, meet us right now. We welcome you. Come Holy Spirit. As we do this in remembrance of you, I pray that you're honored and I pray that you would pull back the veil so that we could experience the God who's beyond our comprehension. The one who doesn't fit into our limited boxes. The one who we can deeply and fully trust. Come Holy Spirit, meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen.